This is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you to the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Readings and Felicitations. In this podcast series, I'm going to be visiting with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, historians, and a wide variety of other people on topics that are outside the area of compliance, but are of great interest to myself and to listeners to the Compliance Podcast Network. In this first episode, I welcome Dr. Ben Lockwood, who discusses with me the current state of the global COVID-19 pandemic, where we have been, and where we might be going. I know you will enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome. And I have back with me Dr. Ben Lockwood, uh, my good friend and colleague, and we are going to probably save the world. So uh, if not, we're going to have a lot of fun, and I know you'll want to be along for our ride. So Ben, first of all, welcome. And um, we're recording this the last day of the end of the first half of 2021, which means, my God, only six more months of this year left. So first of all, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be here. I wore my best denim Texas shirt for you. Well, uh, we're going to talk about the heat wave that you are currently experiencing on the Northeast and the Northwest in a little bit, but I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce that it is 78 degrees uh, in and about Kerrville, Texas today, uh, and just lovely. Beautiful. I love that. You know, there's nothing yeah. like uh, some some nice sunshine and some, some uh, seasonable enjoyable weather to improve everybody's spirits. Well, Ben, the first thing I wanted to talk to you about is, uh, as I said, we were recording this at the end of June. We are in a new phase of the pandemic, uh, in many ways, a hopeful phase, uh, but in many ways, perhaps uh, equally concerning with uh, new developments. So I just wanted to maybe ask you as as open-ended as I can, where do you see we are now and what steps might you suggest both the government and the U.S. public take at this point? How I see it, you know, you characterized it quite well. We've got the remaining half of the year coming upon us starting tomorrow. And, you know, for me, that's a kind of a good time to maybe reflect on where we've been. And it's been, uh, you know, as, as we can all attest to, a very long, long period of time since mid-March of last year when WHO initially characterized the pandemic. And, you know, where we're at now, I think we always should have known that the pandemic could only have ended if that end was going to take place in the form of vaccinations. And, you know, the idea of distancing, the idea of um, mask use and concerns about ventilation, I mean, that was really, if you recall back, only a, a way to stanch the bleeding, um, as it were, right? It was to stem the tide, it was to flatten the curve, as was explained to uh, the press and the American people last year, um, or kind of around this time. And, you know, and, and that was still true. We were never going to solve a pandemic by outmasking it um, with, you know, many other viruses of concern. It's required vaccine campaigns, whether or not people were necessarily willing. Um, and this was really to be no different, I think. So, 
you know, by reducing the burden on hospitals for the severely ill, um, trying to reduce the, the exposure of the more vulnerable age groups and those with comorbidities, uh, you know, we, we did, I think, in large part, the best we could. But again, that was never going to solve it. It was going to be about development of vaccines, which, you know, goes on kind of a, a regimented schedule. Though, you know, Operation Warp, Warp Speed did a lot there. I also think that, you know, Pfizer took no Operation Warp Speed money and yet, you know, did an amazing job with BioNTech in developing their vaccine. Um, so where do we go? I mean, in, in having some high-level discussions and arguments um, at the federal level, also at, at the state level for, for several different state committees, um, within which I was a part, and even more local and regional uh, groups, I think the the challenge has been when do you say that enough is enough? And what I mean by that is, you know, it's up to the WHO essentially to to, to pull that emergency lever and say pandemic. And fortunately or unfortunately, it's also up to them to try to unring that bell and say it's not a pandemic anymore. But you know the, the challenge there is the the definition of when we get past a pandemic isn't really well defined. There's not a good set of metrics. And so I think some of these discussions and arguments, like I mentioned that I've been having, um, really center around this idea of if you've been vaccinated, you're fully immunized. Number one, the idea was to have an incentive program to get people immunized like if you're immunized you don't wear a mask anymore you know and it's taken other forms you know get a free coffee get a beer get five hundred dollars but the point is um incentives work and they you know in some sense have worked for this but i think in a lot of cases we're at about 47 percent of the the u.s um fully immunized which is frankly surprisingly high um, but a lot of that happened without requiring incentives. But to have heard a couple months, a few months back, that even after you're vaccinated, if you're in a building, you're, if you're with others, you should still be masked, I think was exactly the wrong message. It should always have been when you're immunized. So again, that's after you've had two doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech or the Moderna, or the next one likely to be authorized by FDA is is uh, from a company in Maryland called Novavax. And that one, um, I think probably we'll see get authorization in the August, September timeframe. A little bit different and also two doses and very effective. But those are two dose vaccines or the Janssen dose, which everyone calls J&J, &J, but it's really Janssen who's uh, developing it. That was the adenoviral-based vaccine that takes one dose. And anyway, so after your two-dose course or the one dose for Janssen, you're considered fully immunized. Now, that doesn't mean um, there's a 0% chance for breakthrough infections. We certainly know of infections that happen, but you're considered fully immunized. And, you know, at that point, I think nobody's had any business, those who were immunized, wearing a mask. And... So, you know, the idea of, well, you've been immunized, but you should still put a mask on to, I don't know, go shopping or do whatever you're doing, travel. That's kind of tough messaging. The flip side, though, is how do you know that the people who are next to you are fully immunized if they're not masked? Um, because a lot of stores, as you know, 
will have signs out front now these days and they say if you've been fully vaccinated come on in well i don't really see people being turned away at the door so you see this influx of people and you know just based on the 47 percent of the us who've been vaccinated that basically means you know if you're in a store with 50 other people sort of like 24 25 26 of those people probably haven't been vaccinated who aren't wearing a mask so those people are skating by and so that becomes sort of the challenge of what's next in terms of uh, if that's allowed to persist how do we ever get about attaining herd immunity if we ever can so I think there are phases of a pandemic um, and uh, in my mind you know it's like phases of the moon there's there's the waxing phases where the you know moon is kind of apparently growing and then the waning phases where it sorts it starts to disappear i think we should be um in the waning parts of the pandemic um i hope it's like the waning crescent where this is kind of the last of it but at the same time you know i don't want to fool myself or fool any of the the listeners or viewers we're going to be living alongside coronaviruses forever uh, these beta coronaviruses have always been around. We've had coronaviruses causing infections for as long as there have been infections. So it's not a matter of when does it disappear and it's been eradicated. It's a matter of when do we get comfortable living alongside of it. One of the areas I wanted to explore with you is the, uh, I don't want to say fallout, but the changes that the coronavirus and the health crisis and COVID-19 have meant for a variety of, of groups, some businesses, some medicine, some in your field. But I wanted to start with basic hygiene. And I think last year in March, I heard more about washing your hands than perhaps I had since I was seven years old and, and learning about uh, uh, wearing a mask and things that most Americans, if we were aware of, probably didn't do enough. Do you see really that the awareness that most of us either uh, were, were were given or that we were reminded of as is something that long term is going to be of benefit? And when I say mask, I mean people who are sick would wear a mask, or people who are at high risk would wear a mask, which was not really a part of the U.S. culture. Uh, Asian culture, I think, was much more open to it, but just things like that is. Is that something positive that has come out of this, or am I just uh, whistling Dixie, as we would say? <laughs> yeah, interesting. So a little self-disclosure, um, gosh, for probably the better part of at least eight years, call it a decade, I more or less, for any, any travel I've done, business travel, whatever, kind of from around October to February or March, I would always, um, especially internationally, for airline travel, I would, I would wear a mask. Um, and, you know, certainly, so let me go back to the hygiene thing. You know, the, the big four in the pandemic have certainly been distancing, uh, ventilation, masks, and then surface cleaning. So the distancing thing is interesting because we all had to kind of 
in my mind, endure the six foot rule, which really isn't any kind of rule at all. This was something that this fellow uh, German scientist named Karl Flug brought in in the late 1800s. And it was based on projection of droplets. And, you know, they, his work was sort of misread and misrepresented. It became dogma and never should have. So the six foot thing isn't really a thing and almost shouldn't even be written anywhere. So the fact that it became universal dogma is really shocking. Um, you know, how far is far enough? I would say if you can get as far away as possible, you eliminate the hazard, the opportunity for infection. If somebody's 100 yards away from you, it becomes virtually impossible to become infected. The six foot thing was total nonsense. And so we got people thinking, well, if I just stand six feet away from this person who's coughing, I'll still be fine. But I, you know, I believe that the, the clever among us always sort of thought, uh, this seems weird. And then they should have thought it was weird because it is weird and it's a uh, bizarre dogma that shouldn't have happened. Um, you know, ventilation was, was one that I think through the pandemic and as we're hopefully in this uh, so-called, my so-called waxing crescent as it is disappearing, Ventilation is one that was really, I think, underserved. So this idea of if you can't get far enough away from people, what you can do is increase ventilation. And so some businesses took it seriously, put in new filtration, uh, high degrees of HEPA or MERV 13 or greater filtration. Clinics did a lot of that. And it worked great because if you've got respiratory droplets and they get cleared out of the air, they can't infect anybody. Then if both of those layers of Swiss cheese fail, so this fellow James Reason in 1990 had a book called um, uh, Accident Causation. I think there was maybe a pre-title to that, but James Reason's ideas on, um, on the causes of accidents and the, the prevention of them. He talks about this, he coined the Swiss cheese model. You've got various layers of cheese and if any of these layers have big enough holes, uh, they, they're failing, but the other layers pick up for them. So if you can't be far enough away from somebody, you can hopefully have uh, fresh airflow. If you don't have either of those, then you wear a mask. And that's another barrier, which is not 100% effective, but it's sure beats zero. Um, you know, obviously nobody has had to endure a surgery in the United States and most other industrialized nations for a century without uh, the surgeons having be fully masked, fully uh, sterile sleeves, gowns, garments in the sterile field. Um, so we know obviously masks work and I wouldn't want anybody uh, conducting a surgery on me without mask. So, you know, do these practices continue? Tough to say, you know, the, the one that was really kind of aggravating to me was the idea of cleaning. Um, that was uh, so much symbolic theater. There still hasn't been a confirmed case of SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, from surface transmission. So people spent a lot of money uh, fogging offices and wiping surfaces and shelves and doors and walls. And that was really 100% wasted effort. So yeah, good hygiene is always good. And you know, in helping sometimes um, 
nations that don't have good health care, um, poorer nations who, you know, there's not even, let's say, the basics in terms of food or water or vaccination, you know, oftentimes introducing hand hygiene programs does a lot to reducing mortality in those regions. And so things like that are always good, but we were never going to stop infections by washing down surfaces with this particular virus. So, you know, what continues on after this, I would say, um, if we get into the, the fall winter months in the United States, let's say, um, we'll have some booster vaccines available. There'll probably be at that point combination vaccines, um, like, like a flu vaccine combined with a COVID vaccine. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of people who will elect to continue to wear a mask or maybe bring their masks back out for the winter months. You know, but it's important to note that um, while they were never a fail-safe, uh, when properly used, they do work. And, and, you know, there will probably be a recommendation. You know, if I know Dr. Walensky from the CDC that she'll suggest for the fall, fall winter months you know, a lot of times other coronaviruses, not SARS-CoV-2, people tend to have more infections that we see in the clinic in the fall and winter months anyway. So when people are driven indoors because of weather, it's colder out maybe, um, you know, those sorts of infections increase. So the likelihood that we'll start to see a spike in cases is probably the, the next natural progression of this as we get into the fall and winter. So you know, that's why, you know, bearing in mind vaccination and, uh, you know, that it's not really over. But then again, going back to my earlier comment, it's uh, never really over. It, it, we decide when a pandemic ends, well, the WHO decides, but it's really going to come down to a nation by nation thing, I think. When people are comfortable that there's either enough people vaccinated, like we get beyond a 70% threshold for herd immunity, or the case rates get low enough, or the hospitalizations or the deaths get low enough, there's, there's not an official cutoff for it's over and SARS-CoV-2 has disappeared, and that's not going to happen. Certainly in, in my uh, profession of compliance and even in the broader business, uh, some of the trends that have been going on 2017, 2018, 2019 moved ahead at exponential speed last year. One of my favorite phrases was, we had five years of growth in one year. And in compliance, that was generally around the use of data, data analytics for evaluation of high risks. Um, in the business world, there was as the greatest emphasis on supply chains than there had ever been because companies had trouble getting parts or they had trouble getting uh, shipments in, or they had trouble getting PPE, or they had trouble getting their key suppliers were in China or India or some other place. And I wanted to use that as an introduction to ask you in your industry, in the pharmaceutical industry or the broader life sciences industries, were there trends that were percolating around that really grew exponentially because they had to in 2020 and 2021? And, and what might be a couple of them that pop into your mind? Probably the one that comes to mind is this idea of uh, maybe if not an exponential, at least a geometric increase in uh, the number of backlogs of things. 
So because everybody's focus was attuned to COVID-19, um, other types of healthcare maladies, diseases, disorders, any kind of care was really put to the back burner. This was also in sort of a recursive way reflected in, um, let's say, the FDA reviewing and approving new medicines or new medical devices, which basically was totally put on hold. So I suppose, you know, I could liken it to with semiconductors you mentioned or PPE, the, the backlogs, the, the lack of production. I mean, still we can't get microprocessors for a lot of different things. You know, that's uh, the, the computer industry is for various reasons dying right now because of that. Um, and so I would say, you know, the, the ability for us to have a steady stream of new medicines, of new medical devices, of seeing patients who've now waited 12 months, 15 months, 18 months to get seen because clinics were closed or they didn't feel comfortable going in. The backlogs created at the FDA to approve new drugs were, were and are real. So there's not, new, there's not a really a steady stream ready to come to the market because they're all on hold. I guess that extends back more broadly too to science. The number of scientific innovations in general, um, some work I've seen like at uh, some of the MIT labs put on hold almost entirely um, or canceled, right? If it's budgetary, um, any kind of you know technical technological lab innovation. So all this stuff was really just shelved and i think you know what's interesting about it is we could ask the question and of course you can only ask this in retrospect but what has this all done in terms of what does five years from now look like because these backlogs in fda review and approval these backlogs in scientific endeavors and labs not doing lab stuff because they're shut down or they ran out of money has to necessarily have a knock-on effect next year uh, three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, where we're not going to be where we otherwise would have been. And I mean, I guess in my mind, uh, an interesting way of approaching that as a, as a scientific and world community would be, how do we take some of the ideas like with Operation Warp Speed for, and it didn't work for all things, but where it did work, how do we take ideas, concepts like that and say, apply those to being a big accelerator incubator for all sorts of technological innovation to get us back on track. Instead of just saying, great, everything's up and running, let's go back to, to work. It should be, we've lost, we've, we've regressed. Uh, and, and in that lost time, how can we gain some back? So as a consumer of medical and healthcare services, the change that impacted me the most was telemedicine. And my primary physician uh, was not seeing patients personally, but he was doing telemedicine. The uh, regulatory board in the, in the state of Texas loosened rules that there could be uh, uh, prescriptions written based on a, a telemedicine uh, visit, uh, which I used uh, successfully. And, and so is the, have we had a change in the delivery of healthcare services or could there be a change that could help broaden out the delivery of healthcare services uh, in areas where there's not either a primary treating physician or, uh, or even a regional hospital? Do you see any change there? Yeah, definitely. 
you know, the, the, the number of telemedicine visits conducted on a per day basis, as you can imagine, exploded last year. So it was kind of always a thing as long as it was a thing. Um, people never loved it. And I, you know, everybody, with the exception of almost nobody, really has enjoyed it, liked it. People will say it's very convenient or it was a good meeting sort of thing. But if, if asked in comparison to being seen by, let's say, your primary care physician in person, does it approximate that visit? Uh, were you as comfortable? Did it answer as many questions? The answer is almost always no. Um, so it can get better, but I think to your point, it absolutely has changed because more people are using it. It's changed how healthcare has been delivered. And one of the things that we're working on next is um, artificial intelligence in the world of the electronic medical record and also within telemedicine to be able to identify um, patient concerns and trends before maybe you otherwise would have. So this combination of if the telemedicine is how people are going to have prescriptions, let's say, uh, written for them or their follow-ups, all of those data are being amassed in various ways. And there's a way for, it's not so much, I suppose, artificial intelligence, it's the subset of machine learning, which is then being developed to parse through that and say, I am detecting signals here that didn't exist in this patient, let's say, or in patients like this individual. And there are these new threads that maybe were never detectable before. So the problem with that, of course, is you know the, the privacy and how much is identifiable or de-identified data. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think the delivery has definitely changed almost overnight because of the ability for people to basically zoom a telemedicine visit and also to to get certain prescriptions and the next wave like i said is how do you extend that well you extend it by having machine learning help us to figure things out that we were never able to maybe see before in the data with the caveat that there's the more you uncover through those channels, the lesser the privacy level the patients will experience. And I should have added a third prong to what I saw as the reason for the increase in uh, telemedicine. Once again, uh, perhaps limited to the state of Texas because of regulatory reasons, but insurance companies were more open to reimbursing or paying for doctor visits uh, that were over a Zoom call. And so that's an important third prong or a prong of it, I think, any healthcare discussion. And uh, do you see insurance companies open to the types of analysis that you're talking about using uh, large data sets? Yeah, they love it. And they want more of it because, um, well, and actually, let me back that up. So it's not even only, well, so how is, let's say, Tom's personal data in this visit and others connectable and linkable for certain diagnostic states to others and how best could we optimize care? That's one way where then the, the insurance companies can say, all right, so how do we set new premiums? I think another way is just the whole idea in general that the more 
big data exist within the electronic medical records, the insurance companies get a better understanding of um, actual rates of diagnoses for things that maybe they had some uncertainty about before, um, <clears throat> or characteristics that were, let's say, a little bit more invisible or difficult to pin down. And you know, so obviously for actuarial calculations, the the more and deeper the data sets you have, the more accurate you can ascribe to them uh, payment schemes. So uh, I think you know more accurate diagnoses, more accurate uh, prevalence rates and things of that nature will then allow insurance companies to go back, adjust their data sets, which also then adjusts their margins uh, by design. And you know as that happens, we're going to see changes to cost. Um, you know, and one that comes to mind too, that's a, a big cost one is Biogen's recent approval of Aduhelm, which is their Alzheimer's treatment. So that's been in the news uh, a lot. And, you know, rightly so from the perspective of the FDA considers it to be effective and safe enough. And Biogen has suggested a price of about $56,000 a year for therapy. But if everybody takes it who is diagnosed with Alzheimer's in the U.S. at the moment, that would be a $334.5 billion payout per year. So Medicare will basically run out of money instantaneously. So that's one now that Congress is, of course, involved in the discussions. But you know, how do you back out all of back out and untangle? all of these various threads to say, okay, so is it the diagnostics that's wrong? Is it the, the price that's wrong? Is it, you know, so there are so many different things that we have to try to figure out, you know, how much should be covered, who should be covered? Is it everybody who's diagnosed? If the diagnostic criteria get tightened, what does that mean? So um, that's just one example though of how more data and information through telemedicine and other means will change the nature of healthcare reimbursement for all of us. Well, Ben, I think probably that's a good point for us to end this podcast. Uh, this has been just a fascinating conversation, and I look forward to uh, asking you to come back and seeing what we can do to save the world next time. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed our inaugural episode of Greetings and Felicitations. As I said in the intro, we're going to be exploring a wide variety of topics, some compliance-related, some not. So I hope you will join me in this most interesting adventure. Greetings and Felicitations is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We have two other great new podcasts out on the Compliance Podcast Network. Check out From the Editor's Desk, where I visit with Compliance Week Editor-in-Chief Dave LaFort for a monthly wrap-up of Compliance Week stories and events and the ESG Report, the first ESG podcast related to compliance.